Father, we come before you as we have prayed so many times this morning. We ask that you would teach us, that you would guide us. It is, Father, your son Jesus that we honor and wish to lift up. And we wish to do that this morning by learning more what your will is and then applying it. And help us to do that to the best of our ability. Help us to resist the desires of the flesh that we might be holy, sanctified, set apart for your service. And we know that you can work in us to accomplish this. We know that you have begun a good work and that you will bring it to fruition. And so we honor you by going through your word, learning about it, and by the help of your spirit, applying it to our lives. Bless it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week, again, we started in Hebrews chapter 12, and we noticed the therefores, and I told you in this chapter there are six different things we need to pay attention to, how we're to be prepared mentally, be fit physically, be right spiritually. The next one that we will come to is to be bold outwardly, and we see how we're supposed to act. This is the application of Hebrews chapter 11, the great cloud of witnesses which are out there and people that have gone before us kind of looking on and seeing how we're doing. And we we need to make sure that we do what they did where we keep the horizontal relationship with God good. And if that is good, then the vertical or earthly relationships will be good, kind of like a fulcrum. If this is where it's supposed to be, this will be level and balanced. If the relationship with the Father is off then your relationships down here will be off. And so he's telling us, again, to be prepared uh, for that and be physically fit as well as spiritually fit. He talks about uh, how we are to not give in to sensuality, and I read about that last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, uh, where it says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from a life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And it's talking about those who are lost. And having lost all sensitivity, verse 19 of Ephesians, they have given themselves over to sensuality. And I talked about the five senses, that that is how we relate to our lives. Uh, I would ask you the question, you remember Helen Keller, Helen Keller was a deaf mute. I can remember my teacher very early in elementary school reading a book about Helen Keller and how she was, as a child, kind of unruly. They didn't know how to handle her and that she would go around the table and place her hand in the plate and just grab some food because she couldn't speak, or excuse me, she couldn't hear and she could not see. And so they just let her have the run of the house and then her teacher, Anne, I forget her last name. What is her last name? Not Anne Frank. That's, that's almost it. But I, I, I forget her last name. But Anne was her teacher and taught her, Sullivan, thank you, Anne Sullivan, taught her how to communicate. And from that point, Helen Keller just blossomed. Now, I would ask you, uh, I talked about the heart also being the six things you have the taste, the hearing, the smell, the touch, and the eyes, but you also have the heart. She was guilty of a disobedient heart, but she, I'm sure, didn't know it at the point where she could not communicate with anybody. But as far as her senses are concerned, 
do you think that she sinned less because she did not have these senses? And I would submit to you that she did sin less. It didn't make her guiltless, but she did sin less. And so it is by these senses that we are drawn in, like I said, whether it's the taste, and I mentioned to you, Italian food and steak and it's the hearing and the beautiful sounds that we hear and the smells, the perfumes, you know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars are spent on cosmetics and perfumes. And we love to smell those things because it, it riles up the senses. And we are after being sensual individuals through our five senses. But there comes a point where it becomes sinful in all of those areas and we are told not to do this. And we are encouraged to make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy for without holiness no one will see the Lord. And again, I told you that holiness means to be set apart and it needs to be hand in hand with what righteousness is. Now, picking it up in verse 15. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So the first thing that's listed here is the grace of God. Now, the grace of God, I like to say this every time we come across grace, mercy, and justice. And hopefully you have it memorized already. But what is grace? Yeah, getting what you don't deserve. What is mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. And what is justice? Getting exactly what you deserve. None of us want justice. We will gravitate certainly to mercy, but it's great when we can receive the grace of God. Now, grace and bitterness are opposed to each other. They are at opposite ends of the spectrum. The grace of God is the unmerited favor. Unmerited means he doesn't give it to you because you have done something that deserves it. There's no merit in your life. When God looks at you, looks at any of us, he just simply says, yeah, you are pretty much worthless, but I'm going to make you worth something. He's the one that imputes his righteousness to us. And why does he do that? Because we deserve it? No, he doesn't. That's just God's grace. Grace is giving... Our, uh, grace is given to those, or given to those who are humble. Grace is not given to those who are proud. Grace is something that is strange to the person who is prideful. Matter of fact, God opposes those who are prideful, but to those who are humble before Him, He sheds His grace in abundance. In the Old Testament, there is the illustration where you have the sacrifice that is to be brought in, and several times you're to cover it with salt as it is placed on the altar. And that salt is always a representation of the grace of God. And they were to heap the salt on top. And salt for us, when it's used in the right quantities, it is very flavorful. It adds to whatever we are consuming and it is also a preservative. It is something that is good. We are also told to let our speech be seasoned with salt. And all of us are going to err at some point or another but it is necessary to remember these things. So giving a blessing without finding fault is what God does when he gives us his grace. And giving a blessing in the onslaught of cursing and persecution. Now, if somebody is just in your face, are you willing to be kind and nice and give them unmerited favor? I can tell you I am not. That's just my nature. Uh, when somebody is in my face... 
I, I want to get back in their face. I, I, that's my nature. That's what I do, you know. And, and uh, I know that I am supposed to be full of grace and subdue that and make sure that that doesn't come out. Now, also, we're to be kind to those who are angry and bitter. Uh, having been wrong, taken advantage of, or ridiculed, gossiped about, uh, the one who extends grace is caring, nice, generous, gentle, kind-hearted, and considerate and thoughtful towards others, even though they are receiving, quote-unquote, the raw end of the deal, uh, the end of the stick, so to speak, the, the discipline that is unmerited. And so it is our job to make sure we never reciprocate with anything but grace, even though it is completely um, something that God would have us do to make sure that we give that grace. Now, grace is so difficult to extend. Uh, There is a person that wrote 13 books of the Bible that found it hard to extend grace. And he wrote about it more than anybody. Uh, He is the author of grace. He is the one that Jesus talked about it, but Paul wrote about it in most every book of the New Testament or 13 books of the New Testament. And you might say, well, how did he not extend grace? And this grace is where you are kind and gentle and giving to the person who is berating you or even causing you some kind of harm. Now, can you think of an example where Paul did that? where he, when being persecuted, specifically being hit in the face, returned a nice comment. He didn't do that. And, you know, I was going through this going, wow, this is a guy who preaches about grace, but when he gets the opportunity, he doesn't exercise it. And this is where it reads, or it talks about that. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. This is where he's before the Sanhedrin. And he says to them, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, bless you for your strike. No, he didn't say that. He said, God strike you, you whitewash wall. (laughs) You probably don't think that that's very much of an insult, right? You whitewashed wall, like you painted wall. He called him a painted wall, is what he called him. To the Jew, when that was delivered, at the time it was delivered, they would have understood it to mean you are a sepulcher with death inside and you just paint the outside to look like you're righteous, Mr. Righteous High Priest you think you are. That's what he was doing. And on top of saying that... Um, you know, physically, if you could have, he probably would have taken his finger and poked it right in his eye at the same time like that. You whitewashed wall. And I'm thinking, well, that's not very graceful. But then he goes on. And some commentators say, well, he recanted what he said. If you know Paul, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, although I'll give it some room for argument. It continues there. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize he was a high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now, when you look at Paul and his life, you say to yourself, did he say it like that? Did he say it like, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. If you were in with the Sanhedrin, 
do you think you would know who the high priest was? Do you think he'd be seated or seated? That's a new word. Highly technical. If, if he was seated on a particular chair, that chair would have been more magnanimous than any chair that was in there. Kind of like in a courtroom. Do you know who the judge is? The Sanhedrin was a court, is what it was. You would have certainly known who the high priest was. And Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, do you think he knew who Ananias was? Of course he knew who he was. And he called him, you whitewashed wall. So this is how I think he said it. I think he said, brothers, I did not realize he was a high priest. You know, something like that. I think that's more in keeping with Paul's personality. And, you know, he wasn't this mansy-pansy little milquetoast kind of a guy. I think he was short and I think he was full of fire. And I think he was bald-headed and he was ready to take on anyone. And in the presence of him when he was teaching, I think he was the humblest of men. But when he was opposed, especially in writing, he would write things that would just be like that finger in your eye. And I'm looking at that and going, is this the man who talks about grace in all of these books that he has written? Well, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 4, we have another incident where he is writing. And it's talking about in Corinth, there are these people who claim to be these high and mighty apostles, even greater than the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, and they were doing things that they shouldn't do in Corinth. They were teaching false doctrine, uh, pretty bad practices inside the church, things that were going on. And he has written to them a couple of times about this. And he says here, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. In other words, this is kind of an insult, right? You put up with it if somebody preaches another Jesus. It's kind of like you think, well, the grace of God will cover all this. And he's berating them a little bit mildly. He's admonishing them. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, but I do not think I am the least inferior to those, quotes, super apostles. And so, you know, he is once again in writing just going, you super apostles think you're so smart, you know, so heady-minded. And he's, he's just kind of rubbing it in. It's like he's taking lemon juice and squeezing it in a sore or something like that. He wants them to feel the sting of the sarcasm. And I'm going, wait, this is the guy who authored grace, you know, for us really to read about? But you remember in Romans chapter 7, end of the chapter, the things I want to do are not the things that I do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do who will deliver me from this body of death. So he also had a hard time with carrying out God's grace and delivering it. But to those who were humble, he gave it freely. But to those who were proud, he stood up and he opposed them. Now, what would you say if God did this as well? Do you think that God would ever deliver stinging insults right where it hurts the most? Well, he did. And I've read this before, but I just want to remind you about it. Now, God is the author of grace. Paul is the writer and, in that sense, an author of grace for us to read. But it originates from God, the one who is full of grace. God is grace. God is love. All of those things. God is omnipotent. All of those things that apply to God, it's where it originates. Well, he turned to the people in the book of Amos, 
and there is this one mountain in Samaria, and or this mountain actually was called Mount Samaria, and he was talking to the women there who were unconcerned about the poor and more concerned about luxury, about mixed drinks, about looking good and makeup. Now, please, if you wear makeup, there's no fault, no problem. You want to wear makeup, you wear makeup. That's just fine. What he's talking about here is the attitude of the heart. And when he sees that there is a wrong attitude and there is pride brewing here, here's what God says, the one who is the author of grace. He says in verse 1, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Who's he talking to? The women. He's calling them cows. And he goes on to say, You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring us more drinks. In other words, they're lounging around. And this is the God of grace. If these women would have repented and been women that God required in Scripture, he would not have said this. He would not have just come to them and stuck his finger in their eyes and said, you bunch of cows on the mountains of Bashan. Now, if you do any historical research, those cows of Bashan were fat cows. They ate the grass on the side and they were ready for slaughter. They were some choice cows, big and hefty. If you've been to the Del Mar Fair and seen some of those cows that are as tall as a house, you know, those things are just huge. Uh, well, the cows of Bashan, they were delectable. They were huge. They were big. And God delivers this stinging sarcasm. And so what about this grace to finalize it? We're not to miss the grace of God, which means if there is anybody who is humble, and it talks about bitterness, a root of bitterness, we are not to allow the root of bitterness to come in to prevent the grace of God. We can sometimes withhold grace to those individuals who are prideful, just like God does. And we can oppose them just like God does. But the individual who is humble, because we have a root of bitterness, we refuse to do that. And God says, don't. Don't let grow in you a root of bitterness. Now, as far as a root of bitterness or what is bitterness, bitterness is animosity, anger, harshness. One gentleman wrote about it, a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men that makes him sour, crabbed, repulsive in his general demeanor that brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. An illustration of bitterness would be this. One New Year's Eve at London's Garrick Club, British dramatist Frederick Lonsdale was asked by Seymour Hicks to reconcile with a fellow member. The two had quarreled in the past and never restored their friendship. You must, Hicks said to Lonsdale. It is very unkind to be unfriendly at such a time. Go over now and wish him a happy New Year. So Lonsdale crossed the room and spoke up to his enemy. I wish you a happy new year, he said, but only one. That's what he told you. You can tell that there is bitterness in there. He wasn't really to extend some type of grace to him, and that bitterness was just simmering there. Uh, another way to put bitterness, it is a host hostile disposition 
and a poisonous frame of mind that causes people to brood, scowl, and become repulsive in demeanor. And it is not to be part of the Christian's life. Who is wise among you? According to James chapter 3, verse 13, let him show it by his good deeds, or excuse me, by good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So it's being chafed, it's being discontented, it's being painfully irritated. There's extreme wickedness or gall, a sharply stinging conversation, all of these things, causticness, that is the person who is bitter when a particular subject comes up. And that's where uh, James says, chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, what brings on bitterness? It's by what is done and what is said and what is taken from us or to us. Again, what is done, what is said, or what is taken from us or to us or about us. And somebody comes and wrongs us in some type of fashion, we have the opportunity to let our flesh take over and just get rooted in bitterness. And talking about the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, he's talking about those who are not saved, both Jews and Gentiles. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So somebody who is not saved, that's how God looks at them. In their heart, it's a terrible condition. Remember Simon the sorcerer? Uh, Simon Peter said, For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And so it's obvious on the outside. It's not something that can be easily hid. Perhaps you have some bitterness that you have been carrying over someone or something that they did to either you or a family member and you're just brewing on it. It, and it only comes up every once in a while. Now, I'm going to illustrate how this happens. And God does this. He calls this a root, right? Now, if he calls this a root, he desires, if you live in an agrarian society, to think of roots, to think of plants. He's saying, I want you to think of bitterness in these terms. There is a root of bitterness. Now, if he said a root of bitterness, what do you think the root might look like? you think it'd be a small fibrous root from a grass plant, you know, something like that? Or do you think it's going to be a really fat and thick root that kind of goes down deep? I think that's what he's talking about. Now, to give you an example of this, there are a couple of plants uh, being in the landscape industry. There are a couple of plants out there that are called weeds. One of them is a curly dock. You may be familiar with what curly dock is. The other is a dandelion. This is a dandelion. Now, look how beautiful that is, right? Now, I'm going to illustrate this a little bit. Bitterness for us, when it comes along, what does it feel like? It feels good because we brew on it. Now, I've had the opportunity to be bitter over the years, even recently, where I, I just, I will get on something in my mind. I have a lot of time to think. I'm driving down the road and I think about someone or something and it just feels good what I'm going to say. You know, when I, when I see that person, I'm just going to lay it out and I'm going to let the causticness and the vile and the non-grace come across because they did something to me that made me resent them. And if I'm not careful, I can let that just flourish. When you have a dandelion like this, now if you're a farmer, like up in Oregon, they grow these in rows. Do you know why they grow them in rows? For your salad. 
they make them for your salad because the leaves of the dandelion plant are edible and you can eat them. Now, just as this looks beautiful to you, it feels beautiful to experience bitterness and we hang on to it because the flesh loves it. Now, the next picture. This is what happens when you have bitterness that is allowed to remain. You get not only one blossom, but you get several blossoms. It will affect several areas of your life if you allow it. But you have to get rid of this blossom. Now, it says it will also spread and affect others. Next picture, please. What is that? How difficult it is, is it for those seeds to be dislodged from that stem? Not difficult at all. If you let the bitterness grow, let the flower come up. And by the way, a dandelion flower, within 24 hours it can change into this. That's how quick it happens. So your bitterness that you have, if you let it stay there and you don't deal with it, all of a sudden you have just not one bloom. You may have half a dozen off of one root. You are allowing that root just to expand and grow and get way down there, right? Now, if you blow this, where do those seeds go? Everywhere. If you're um, one who takes care of a lawn and you have a beautiful lawn and there are no weeds in it and one of these comes up and a little kid comes out and goes, ah, and picks that thing up and blows it all over the lawn, you are going to go apoplectic. You are going to bust a vein inside of your neck and you're just going to say, no, you're just going to be so upset. But people who don't know better will come along and they will take your flower and they will say, how beautiful. And you go, yeah, isn't it? And they blow it and it just goes everywhere because you allowed them to pick it. And what that means is, you have shared your bitterness with somebody else and they take it many times unknowingly. They go out and go, oh, look at that. And they're just blowing it everywhere and the bitterness goes around and falls where it wills. And then everybody will end up being affected. Pretty soon, you had just this one little seed. Now on here, hundreds of seeds on one blossom. On that one picture of dandelions I showed you, there can be over a thousand seeds. And they will blow in the wind and infect everything near and far. Which leads us to the next thing. Look how big that root is. Now for a dandelion, and this is a young plant. This is not an old plant. That root there, you can see, is probably about a foot. It goes into the ground about a foot. And the plant is about this tall, maybe about six inches tall. And the root can be twice as big as the top of the dandelion. Now, remember, keep in focus what we're doing here. We're talking about bitterness, a root of bitterness. And this is what God wanted you to focus on. Now, I'm just using the dandelion as an example. And especially being, like I said, in the landscape industry, I deal with these all the time. They are out there, and they are a problem, and I have to take care of them. Now, with this root, one thing about that is a characteristic of the dandelion is... You can go and think you're going to pull it. You go out there and go, oh, those dandelions, I hate those dandelions in my lawn. And you, you twist it off there and you just pull it out. Sorry, you didn't get rid of it. Because God talks about the root and that's why he used a root. 
you can go in and snap it off at the top. Somebody comes and talks to you and says, you know, I think you have a little bit too much bitterness going on. Oh, you're probably right. Yeah, I have to deal with that. Well, let me just snip off the top of that thing and we'll just throw it away, okay? What happens? It grows back again. And what does it do when it grows back? With a vengeance. It comes back and there's not just one bloom, but there's going to be several blooms that come off of that thing because you actually didn't deal with the bitterness that is inside. And so you have this root. There's one more picture. Look at all those roots off of those dandelions out there. Now, this comes from somebody who's harvesting them. But every dandelion that goes down, that first one there on the bottom looks like a carrot. It is huge. If you don't deal with the bitterness on the inside, you will affect everyone around you. And God says, do not let a root of bitterness take hold in your life. You are to make sure you put guards up. If somebody has wronged you, you know, a a mature attitude on something like this for yourself to deal with. If somebody harms you, you should just say, oh, well, I probably deserved it. Remember, you're to endure all hardship as discipline. Maybe the Lord allowed this to come in, but we want to just sit there and brew. It's like, it's like a witch that just makes this brew and <laughs> throws stuff in there and mixes it up and smells it and gets the dandelion root and a little bitterness in there and just making a concoction. And God says, forsake what witches do, right? In the Old Testament, you were not to be a witch like the witch of Endor. She was a witch. And you are not to allow that to be a part of your life. Now, how did this affect somebody in the Old Testament? Well, first, let me reread verse 15. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Again, that's the seeds that would blow across. And then verse 16 says, See that no one is sexually immoral, or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son? So two things are mentioned here. First, he talks about the sexual immorality, and then he talks about godless like Esau. Now, if you remember the story of Esau, and I'll just read it to you. In Genesis chapter 25, he had been out hunting. And when he was out hunting, he came back empty-handed. And back then, when you hunted, it took some skill and effort, and it kind of wore you out, and you definitely wanted to eat whatever you caught. Well, he came back without catching something, and Jacob, his brother, little dirty, sneaky thief, was inside the camp, and he was cooking up some stew. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm hungry, stew, like a beef stew that has been simmering, especially like for a day, You know, the next that you cook it and you put it in the fridge and you bring it back out and you heat it back up and you stir that up and the spices have all melded together, the potatoes and the carrots and and the meat and the broth in there and the steam comes up. And if you're hungry, if you're starving and you smell that, it's like a magnet, a 10-ton magnet pulling on your nose and you were just drawn to it and he was hungry. He was thinking he was going to starve. So he knew his brother was cooking this stuff up. And it tells us, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why they call it Edom. Edom means red, red stew. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. This guy is blackmailing his brother. 
for the birthright. Back then, the birthright was a big deal. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is my birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34 is the key. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he was bitter. He had a root of bitterness that just went really deep after that took place. So much so that he wanted to kill Jacob afterwards. Remember that? He was plotting to take his life after the death of the father. And verse 17 says, Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. In other words, we're to let this go. Fortifying bitterness forfeits blessing. If you fortify the bitterness in your heart, you are going to end up forfeiting blessing. Now, how do you get rid of the root of bitterness? There's a couple of ways to do it. There's one tool called a dandelion digger. And it is a shaft, and at the end it has a little fork right on the end. And you can take that in soft soil. You can't do it in hard soil. But in soft soil, you have to take this instrument, and it's something that is outside of you. You have to get a tool that is outside of you in order to remove the bitterness. You can't just pull a dandelion. You can't go up yourself and just go, oh, there it is, it's gone. You can't do that. You have to get that tool, stick that tool in the ground, get to the bottom of the root, and it's about seven inches long, get to the bottom of the root and pop that thing up and make sure no root is busted at the bottom. Because you leave a tiny little bit at the bottom, you're going to have another dandelion there. You have to take it out like it's cancer. That's one way to do it. But it's something that is outside of you. Or you can use dichlorophenocyacetic acid. And you say, say, what is that? That is what is known as 2,4-D. If you go down to any garden shop, they're going to give you this acid, this 2,4-D. And what happens is it will fall onto the dandelion and it will get inside and kill it from the inside out and you will see it wilt. It will go all the way down to the tip of the root using its own vascular system to take it out. Now, if somebody comes along and they are the dandelion digger for your life, God may use that. Then there's the Holy Spirit, the miraculous chemical that comes along, and he can give you a portion of his Holy Spirit which will go into your life deep and will remove that root of bitterness. It never needs to be pulled It just simply dissolves in place, browns, decays, and blows away. But that's if you're willing. If God wants to come along by the power of his spirit and, so to speak, grab a tank sprayer and spray that little weed, and you're going, no, and you cover, and you don't want that thing sprayed, it's never going to be taken out. It has to be extricated. It has to be pulled. It has to be gotten rid of. And if you allow somebody to do it, if you're a humble individual, that's when the confession comes in and you say, you know, you're right. Could you please pray for me that this would be removed? And a brother or sister can help you with that. On the other hand, nobody can help you sometimes except for God himself. And he uses that spray and he ministers to you in such a way where you can just take away the bitterness. Because that's what God did for us when he died on the cross. 
You guys really get that concept? It's something that God can do and he does it freely and there's no effort involved. You don't have to work at pulling the weed out. God will just do it. Then secondly, and we'll end up closing, we have just a few minutes here. Uh, The thing that was mentioned there was sexual immorality. This is always a tough subject to talk about because it's so prevalent. There are those of you in here that are involved in sexual immorality. It's not my job to come along and beat you upside the head because everybody has a sin. Everybody has a problem. But God tells us, look, let's deal with this. And the reason this is almost always number one in the list that are given in the New Testament is because it was prevalent back then as well. And God is not out to ruin your fun. You know, the physical relationship, if it's used properly, it is such a blessing. If it is not, there is such emptiness that is there. You are becoming one with somebody that you really don't even know. And you might think you know them, but God is not going to bless that relationship. He just says, look, don't do this for your own sake. Just turn from this. Just just walk the other way. Now, that is hard because our senses don't like that. Our senses, you know, young men, they don't use any other sense, if you get what I mean. They, that's how they operate, and it's the older man's job to tell the younger men, look, just don't do this. One of the conversations I had recently with a young person that said, you mean I shouldn't live together before I get married? I said, no. And they're going, wait, I shouldn't live? I shouldn't take a test drive first? No, don't take the test drive. Well, how do I know if it's going to work? Isn't that always a big question? How do I know if we're compatible? Well, God has a funny way of working things out like that. As long as you're submissive to him. If you're not submissive to him, it's never going to work. It is, it's just forget it. You might as well give up before you even start. It's not going to work if you do it under your own steam. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do not be deceived. That those who are sexually immoral, and it talks about all kinds of sexual immorality there. It's the male prostitutes and it's the homosexual offenders and it talks about fornicators and everything to do with sexual perversion or sexual misconduct is encompassed in this. Pornography, everything. He just says, please don't. And if you do, you are deceived if you think you're going to heaven and you think this is okay. There is no repentance. The repentance has not really taken effect. Now, somebody could be addicted. If they're addicted to that, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, help that person who is addicted, you who are spiritual. We're supposed to assist each other. And I think it's a good idea that men help men and that women help women. It is not a good idea that men help women in something like this. I think the reasons for that are obvious. In closing, this is my second closing. I wanted to give you where our culture is going. Thirteen states are left. Thirteen states are left, and they are all in play as to whether or not same-sex marriage will be allowed. All the rest of the states allow it. The Supreme Court is going to be ruling on it. I don't like the chances. I said before years ago that this is going to become a reality. 
And that may be true, but for us, the reality needs to be the church. Is it going to come into the church and be accepted? Former Mars Hill Church pastor Rob Bell has been raising a lot of eyebrows for his evolving views about Christianity and the Bible. Bell and his wife, Kristen, recently appeared on the Oprah Winfrey on her Super Soul Sunday program where he suggested the Bible is irrelevant to today's culture. We're moments away. I think the culture is already here, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. He told Winfrey, when asked about the church embracing gay marriage, his wife admitted that churches across the nation are still split on the issue, but added that those who maintain an orthodox view on homosexuality are regressing. I think there is a lot of people who, as they see culture moving, their response is to dig deeper, is to, like, hold their ground, fight against it. Kristen Bell said, So I think that there are both things happening. There are churches that are moving forward into that area, and there are churches who are almost, almost regressing and making it more of a battle. This is where we're going with our culture. And pretty soon, they will ask the church to embrace incest they will ask the church to embrace polyamory, which is if you want to have two wives and one husband, that's okay. That's where this is going. So where do you say, no, God calls it wrong. Yes, it's 2,000 years old. Did you know that truth doesn't change, that it remains the same whether it was 2,000 years ago or today? I think that Mr. Bell himself has become irrelevant. The culture is going to go its own way. As a church... Please don't fall under the condemnation, but feel free to fall in the hands of God who forgives freely. If you're involved in something like that, just say, God, help me. If God, you can't get the help from God, turn to a brother or sister and say, will you please help me with this? This is a sin that is common to all men and all women. And let me pray for you right now. Father, I lift up those who are in here those who may be struggling with a root of bitterness or with sexual immorality, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that you would cause them in their own time to weep before you, understanding that this is displeasing to you and help none of the individuals in here fall into the trap of being deceived, that it's okay. Father, we ask for purity in this church in all of our minds, in the way that we conduct ourselves in our society. And we pray that we would not give approval to that which you call wrong or acquiesce and say it's just going to happen. Help us to be relevant only to you, that we are doing what you ask. And we know that blessing flows from that. And we know that societies digress if they don't listen to you. And so, Father, please let no condemnation fall on those who are here, but may a heart of repentance seize us all when we go astray. And we thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor that you give so freely to those who are humble. Father, help us to remain that way. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.